So Big Ed, Big Ed lives in the south. Big Ed lives in Texas. Big Ed hears that there's a revival taking place. In Texas, Big Ed discovers that this revival meeting is inside a big tent. And he hears about this preacher that's going to be there. And he knows that he's heard this guy someplace before, so he decides he's going to go listen to him again because Big Ed has a need in his life. So Big Ed goes to the revival meeting. He hears the preacher preach. The preacher's hollering and shouting and stomping. And in the middle of his preaching, he stops and he says, I know there's somebody here who needs to be prayed for. If you have issues in your life and you would like me to pray for you, why don't you come on up? So a whole bunch of people come up front and they line up and they wait their turn as the pastor, the preacher, prays over them. So Big Ed makes his way and when it's his turn, the preacher turns to him and he recognizes him. He says, Big Ed, what do you need me to pray for you for? Big Ed looks at the preacher and he says, I need you to pray for my hearing, preacher. So the preacher puts one hand on his head and he puts one hand on his ear and he begins hollering and shouting and screaming. And then he pulls his hand back and he says, with cupping his hands over his mouth, Big Ed, how's your hearing? Big Ed cups his hand and talks to the preacher. Well, preacher, I don't know. It's not until next week at the DuPage County Courthouse. Others can explain it to you if you didn't get it. You're much sharper than the 9 o'clock crowd. Miracles are fascinating to us. How God works supernaturally through His people. Healing was fascinating to the people of Jesus' time to the degree that God recognized it was something that was so other than human that he said it would be an identifier by which you would recognize when the Son of God arrives. You will know when the King of glory arrives. You will know when the Messiah arrives because of some very remarkable characteristics. Isaiah wrote about this hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival by saying, you'll know when the Messiah arrives because of what he will do. Look with me up on the screen. Isaiah 35.5 Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Miracles authenticated Jesus as the Messiah to a degree like no one had ever seen before. No one ever knew. At the end of John the Baptist's life, after he had spent so much time declaring who Jesus was, He's in prison. He's about to be beheaded. And he has a moment of doubt. He wonders if what he's about to die for is really the real thing. So he sends some guys over to find Jesus. And when they get to him, they say, John's wondering. He's about to die. Are you really what you say? Jesus recognized that miracles were so other than human that that's what he uses as an example when he says, you take John back this word, that he should not lose heart on account of me. This is Jesus' example. Look with me on the screen. Matthew eleven four, Jesus said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. You see what's represented there in that text? People who were born blind with non-working eyes see. 
people who are paralyzed are walking. Leprosy was incurable in Jesus' lifetime. They're no longer lepers. The deaf can hear. The mute can speak. And we even got into the part where Jesus raises the dead. So it's authenticated. It caused unprecedented sensations to the degree that people flocked to Jesus. They couldn't wait to be in his presence. You know that Luke actually wrote about that, saying there were so many people they were actually stepping on each other. Look with me up on the screen, Luke 12.1. So many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. But it's not because they were loyal to Jesus as the Messiah. They were there for the free food and the excitement. They wanted to see the show. They were entertained by this. This is fascinating to people. But it authenticated who Jesus was. So we learned a couple weeks ago in chapter 2 that when Jesus cleansed the temple, declaring the holiness of God, it was specifically for a reason, not to cause sensation, but to make it a pure worship place, and that irritated the authorities. Even though Jesus was who he said he was, they were still irritated with him and his actions. What you're going to see this morning is an outbreak of hostility towards Jesus at a pool in Jerusalem, a pool where people went to be healed. Jesus went there, and his actions fan into flame antagonism like we haven't seen before in Scripture. And they're going directly after Jesus. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, open up your Bible to John chapter 5. And if you don't, there's Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you. If you're new to New Hope, you'll discover that those Bibles are there not only for your benefit, but also because we want you to have a copy of God's Word. So when you leave today, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you. We really want you to have a copy of the Bible. Feel free to take that. But you'll also be able to follow along up on the screen. Also something you want to know in the bulletins you picked up this morning, these little study notes are in there, and there's blank spaces. The answers for those blank spaces will appear on the screen during this teaching so that you can follow along. So let's pick up at John chapter 5 and verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after these things, after what things? Well, we learned last week that Jesus had been all the way up in northern Israel. He's in the area, uh, Galilee, and he's healed this, a son of a royal official. So after that event, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a whole slew of activities in which Jesus did different things during this span of time. It appears that there, maybe there was a year in between the healing of the nobleman's son and this incident that you're going to look at this morning. So there's a lot of things in the synoptic gospels that's not covered here in John. So there's a break in the action. So after these things, Jesus heads to Jerusalem. What does he go there for? Well, he's going there specifically for this feast. You know, John lists six different feasts in his book. Every one of them he names except one, and this is the one. He doesn't name it. He doesn't tell us which one. We don't know if he's there for the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, and it doesn't really matter to John. He just wants us to understand why Jesus is there. He's not interested in the chronology as much as he's interested in what's going on in Jesus' life and this unbelief that's surrounding him. People don't believe who he is. So verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Now you see you're looking through the eyes of an eyewitness. And so John writes for the benefit of those who have never been to Jerusalem. 
Uh, some of you in this room have been to the Holy Land. You've been there. You've actually seen this area. But many people who received this writing had never been there. They didn't understand what's John talking about. So he gives some detail. There's not just a city called Jerusalem. There's a gate, and there's a pool. And, then, and this pool is called Bethesda. And there's something remarkable about it. It has five porticos. So he refers to Hebrew right there in the verse. You see that himself. He says in Hebrew it's called Bethesda. It means place of mercy. It's one of the most common interpretations for it. This place of mercy has this area, a pool, by this near location where they sell sheep. Now, if you happen to have a copy of the NASB version of the Bible, New American Standard Version, New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that the word gate is in italics in your Bible. And the reason it's there is because that word gate is not in the original text. The, the people who translated it were help, trying to help people understand what this location was. But more specifically than that, John gives us a very unique detail, something only an eyewitness could see, a pool with five porticos. Now, what's a portico? Well, think of today of like a porch with a trellis top on it. So it was very common in the Roman world when a big pool was built to surround it with colonnades and to build porches on the sides, all four sides. But there was no known pool in the entire Roman world with five porticos. As a matter of fact, up until 1890, it was believed that this portion that was written in here was written in error. John couldn't possibly be right. There's no pool in the world with Roman porticos totaling five. All of them have four. Until 1890, archaeologists are excavating around this area called St. Anne's Church. They're trying to shore up the foundation. And when they shore up the foundation, they discover this pool from the days of Jesus with five porticos. Once again, archaeology authenticating God's word. So never take God's word at question like that. God's word is always validated by archaeology. It's never taken away from. It's always validated. It just takes people a long time to discover it. So John's giving us this eyewitness image. Under these porticos, under these trellises, masses of people gathered, people who wanted to be healed because they believed there was something remarkable about this pool. Apparently, this pool was fed by intermittent springs, and there were surges of water that came into the water and caused a rumbling. But specifically, people envisioned that these waters had healing power to it. Ancients tell us that this water actually had a reddish tint to it, probably like mineral water today with a rusty color to it. So there was a lot of belief around this water having some healing power and huge crowds gathered around it. Now what I want you to know before we go to verse 3 is that the earliest manuscripts, the very oldest portions that we have written about this portion of Scripture, leave out verse 4 completely. And I'm going to show you why, but we're going to read through it first. Look with me at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. In parentheses now, if you have like an NASB, you'll see that this is broken out. Waiting for the moving of the waters. Verse 4, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. That section that you're looking at is not in the original documents. 
As a matter of fact, the earliest known documents from 125 A.D. all the way up to 400 A.D. do not contain verse 4. If you have an English standard version of the Bible, it doesn't even include verse 4. It puts it as a subtext down at the bottom of the page because there's much question about this portion. And so a problem arises. Apparently, a scribe after John died trying to help clarify why people were at the water added this portion in to help people understand why are people gathered around there? What's the purpose of this pool? What's going on here? So I don't say this to help you question the Word of God. I never want you to do that. I'm not one who would set aside sections of God's Scripture at all. But there's very clearly in in scholarly work a question as to where that came from. So there's four places in the world where the oldest manuscripts are held at. The Vatican, Vienna, Austria, Dublin, Ireland, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Amazingly, the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor has a center for New Testament studies, and they have this document on display. So people can go and look at it and see that this was not necessarily in the original document. Now, I don't tell you that just to trouble you about God's Word and what can you trust and not trust, because the translators have gone to the work of actually breaking it out, putting it in parentheses, and italicizing it to help people understand people were gathered there for a reason. Whether they believed there were actually angels in the water or whether they believed it was just good mineral water, we don't know. But there's no question people were gathered in mass around this pool. And among those gathered at the pool was one man who was hoping for a miracle. And we're told in this next verse, verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. 38 years, we're told, He's lame. Now, we're not told the exact nature of his illness, but we're told in the next passage, he's too weak to move on his own. As a matter of fact, he can't get to the water fast enough. So look with me at the next verse because his situation appears to be hopeless. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Remember what we learned last week if you were here? There's moments specifically when we can point and say, God focused his attention. You see that here. God focusing his attention on this individual. This one who set aside this incredibly needy man. And the question seems really kind of naive, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to be healed? You've been paralyzed for 38 years. It's obvious I wouldn't be at the pool in the first place. But we understand that Jesus is deliberate about everything that he does. And so he's not just making small talk here. This is not just for the sake of carrying on conversation. Do you wish to get will? But I think specifically, Jesus is asking him to challenge his thinking He's asking him to think a little bit bigger. What's going on in his head? What's the bigger picture here? Look closely at the text. It says Jesus knew already a long time that he's been in that condition. What does that tell you about God being aware of your situation? When you think no one else knows what's going on, God knows. And he knows specifically what's going on in this man's life. So is God aware of your situation? Absolutely. Jesus knew this man's situation. 
not just physically, but he also knows his heart. And so he asks this question to challenge him because he's been so long in this condition that his will has been paralyzed, not just his body. This is the way Dr. Merrill Tenney sums it up. You'll see the quote on the screen. The question implies an appeal to the will, which the long years of discouragement may have paralyzed. Jesus thus challenged the man's will to be cured. You'd think he'd be enthusiastic. Yeah, I want to be healed. But that's not what he does. Instead, he starts with excuses. Look at this. I have no one. I can't get to the pool. No one's here to help me. And when I try and get there, somebody cuts in in front of me. I can't make it. So he's lost his determination. And he's waiting for someone to assist him. And maybe that's what he's thinking in his mind Jesus is going to do. I need somebody to help me get into the water. So his own efforts result in wasted energy. They avail him nothing. This is what this tells me, though. He has failed to grasp the magnitude of what God is offering him. And he totally misses what's going on here. Instead of looking to the one who made his legs, he's looking to what he knows. He believes in the powers of the pool. Instead of looking to the one who can actually create him. So his superstition kicks in. And he believes in what he believes as opposed to believing in what God can do. You imagine this? You're in one-on-one conversation with the one who spoke the galaxies into existence. And you're worried about getting a mineral bath because he totally doesn't understand what's going on here. The possibility that Jesus could heal him never entered his mind. That he could leap like a deer. Let me take you back to the verse we looked at this morning when we first started. Isaiah 35.5. Look on the screen. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. I'm struck with this, that Jesus knew already this man's condition when he arrived. He's already completely aware about it. He's thinking about this man and this guy doesn't know that he's being watched by God. Just like every one of us. God's totally aware. And he's got one thing on his mind. How do I get to the pool? I need a way into the mineral bath. Kind of like a survival of the fastest thing. That's what they're thinking. So his expectations of what Jesus could do are totally limited to what he personally believes in. Go with me to the next verse, verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Sometime you ought to take time to do a study of when the Scriptures say, and God said. I'm going to show you some of it in Scripture. I'm going to take you to Genesis. Look with me at Genesis 1-3, first of all. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let there be an expanse. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered. Then God said, 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 get up and walk. How amazing. The creator who spoke the galaxies into existence has now said to this one who believes he can't walk, you're going to do the impossible. My words have the power to create. And how does his creation respond? Look with me at verse 9. Immediately the man became well. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. He's been told to do the impossible. Stand on your feet. Get up. Pick up your pallet 
and walk. After 38 years, the muscles had atrophied. The joints seized up. There's no question this man had not experienced this kind of movement. And all of a sudden, immediately, a surge of power wells through his body. Muscles swell. Joints move. Do you think he's doing a dance at this point? I'm thinking he's doing a dance. And here's the most remarkable thing. God sought him out. There's no record whatsoever that he asked Jesus. Jesus sought him out. And this perfectly illustrates, church, of God's grace in action in our lives, just like it's in this man's life. Of all the sick people laying by the side of the pool, he could have chosen anyone. This man's no deserving more than anyone else. Just like he chose you. Just like in salvation. We're no more deserving than anyone else. We don't bring anything to the table. But God chooses us because of his grace and because of his mercy to redeem us. Jesus approaches him. This would be a good point to say amen because that's what your God does. That is your God in action. Now, if you've grown up in church, you're aware that this next phrase should be followed by a musical note. When it says, now it was the Sabbath on that day, you'd want to go, dun-dun-dun, because you understand what's going on here. Jesus chose the Sabbath to do this. Why didn't Jesus choose Friday? Why didn't he choose Sunday? Because Saturday is their Sabbath. The word Shabbat in Hebrew, Sabbath means Saturday. That's the day they set aside for their day of rest, commanded from God, fourth commandment. You're going to rest on the Sabbath. He'd been there 38 years. Could Jesus not wait till Sunday? No. Again, you see that our God is very deliberate in his action. And there's something much bigger going on here than this incident and this man being healed. So you're about to see another brushstroke. If you're new to New Hope, we're working through the series called The Portrait. And John 1.18 says that Jesus explains God. So every time we see these brushstrokes, Jesus is painting on the canvas what God the Father looks like. And so here's another brushstroke. Jesus is about to paint this image that God is not constrained by man's definition of how he can work and when he can work. He absolutely is not limited. He can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. There is nothing limiting him. So in John's writing for us, this is a transition point. We understand it's no longer about the man by the side of the pool. This is about something much bigger going on when he says this is the Sabbath. It's now about man's rules versus God. And so Jesus deliberately chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. And you can just see the coal being picked up and thrown into the fireplace because the fury and the wrath is beginning to build. The authorities are aware, as you're going to see in a moment. Why did Jesus choose the Sabbath? Because this nation, just like the United States today, is living under a spiritual illusion. They're living under this illusion that they've got a spiritual life. They think because of where they're born and who they are, they are God's chosen people. Many Christians that you speak with, many Americans that you speak with, will use the terms interchangeably and say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I was born in the United States. That's not what the Scriptures say. It's not where you're born. It's who you claim to belong to. 
And these individuals didn't get that. So Jesus is going to confront them. They've got this illusion of spiritual life, and he's going to call them on the carpet. He wants to confront them because they've got a self-righteous heart, and they're living under this delusion. What's the delusion? They've become experts at substituting tradition and legalism for a real, genuine life with God. If you go back generations before Jesus was on the earth to the time when the people were in the wilderness, to the time under the time of the rule of King David or the rule of King Solomon, you find a nation of people who had a real life with God. But generation after generation, heaping rule upon rule, caused them to use and lose this real life with God. And they traded it for traditions and legalism. That's why Jesus is so harsh when he speaks to them. Look with me on the screen for an example of that. It comes from Matthew 15, 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You can take this to the bank. Whenever man-made rules get in the way of truly worshiping God, it is life-taking every time. It's never life-giving. False religion, false belief can't change the inside, can't change the heart like God can do, so they're left to manipulate the outside. And I don't care if it's Mormonism or Hinduism or Islam, it's all about rules. Whereas with Jesus, it's all about your heart. It's not manipulating the outside. It's about who you are. So this Sabbath, Shabbat, was central to their worship of God. It was a huge pillar in their life. It was a critical point on which they defined themselves because they actually believed this. They believed if they could have one perfect Shabbat, one perfect Sabbath day, it would usher in the arrival of the Messiah. So everybody in the nation, if they could just have one day in which they all behave, the Messiah might actually arrive. So they're very focused on these rules. And Jesus said, you guys are totally missing it. That isn't what Sabbath came for. Look with me up on the screen. It comes from Mark 2.27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So go with me to verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, and when it says the Jews, it's talking about the authorities, those who were in control. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet, meaning his bed, his mat. We have had our share of crazy, stupid laws here in the United States. Do you know there's still a law in the books in Mississippi that says it's illegal to serve beer to elephants? Where did that come from? Apparently, somebody must have been serving beer to elephants at one time. So the, the law is still on the books. In Joliet, Illinois, there's this law that's still on the books that says women may not go into a store and try on more than six dresses at one time. So my wife will get arrested if she ever goes to Joliet, Illinois. Because <laughs> she, she's always trying on more than six dresses. So every law makes sense to the lawmakers at the time. They get it. They understand it. Parents will really understand this. If your children come to you, maybe your teenage children, your grown children, will come and say, hey, I want to go hang out with so-and-so tonight. Is that okay? You say, yeah, that's fine. Just be back at a reasonable hour. Define reasonable. 
Okay, what you think of as reasonable and what your adult child might think of as reasonable may be two different things. So the next time they say, I want to go hang out with so-and-so, and you say, be back at a reasonable hour. By the way, I mean blank. You've refined it. And eventually, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis kept refining the law and adding to it, trying to make sure that people didn't step outside the bounds. So when they say, it's the Sabbath, it's not permissible. They're talking about rabbinic law. They're not talking about biblical law. They're adding laws to God's laws. God never said that. God never said you can't carry your pallet. He just said you need a day of rest. You need to recharge. There were 39 tasks that the Jews came up with to prohibit people from doing anything on the Sabbath. And carrying the burden, carrying like this mat, was one of them. One of the rules they were so concerned about the Sabbath being violated was that people at this period in time had discovered that you can put vinegar on your gums or on your teeth if you had a toothache. However, not on the Sabbath, because that would be work. So they allowed people to dump vinegar on their food. And if by chance the vinegar on your food got on your gums and took away the toothache, then if he's healed, he's healed. That's okay. But don't be caught rubbing it on your gums, because God might be offended. You see how legalism creeps in? So this is what Jesus is up against, these individuals who are thinking this way. So picture this with me. I got this guy who's been paralyzed 38 years, who's picked up his mat, and he's walking along. Hey, what are you doing? And the little policy Nazis come out, and they've got their little tin badge on, saying, you can't do that. So they've created this prison of regulations. This man is completely cured, and they're irritated that he's breaking the rules. They totally can't see. And now what we find in the next verse, he's been caught. So what's he going to do? He's going to try and shift the blame. He's going to try and point it to someone else because he's he's been caught in the act. It's something illegal going on here. Verse 11, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. It is really difficult to understand the relationship between this man and Jesus because there's no evidence in the story whatsoever that he ever became a believer in Jesus. Merely that he was a benefactor of a relationship. So he's really quick to excuse himself. Hey, it's not my fault. I was just laying there and this guy came along and told me to get up and that I was healed. What was I supposed to do? He's the one that told me to pick up my pallet and walk. Go look for him. Look at what Leon Morris says about this guy. The man was not the stuff of which heroes are made. He's very quick to back up and not defend Jesus. Verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. The Greek word for what's taking place here is iratao. See the definition? Interrogate. So that's why I put the emphasis on who is the man. These little policy Nazis are going right after him and they're drilling down. Who has the audacity to call for a Sabbath violation? This is defying the authorities. We cannot tolerate this. This is insolence. We need to deal with this. You see that they're so consumed with the minutiae of the rules that they totally miss the mercy of God absolutely blind to it. 
No wonder this is what Jesus said when he's talking to them about tithing and giving their offerings versus serving the kingdom. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And they're disappointed that the guy doesn't know who it was that healed him. That's what they're focused on. Hey, the stranger approached me, he healed me, and he left. Who was that masked man? I have no idea. He's gone. For Jesus had slipped away. That's what we're told. So the Greek word there literally means dodge, like you're dodging a snowball. Jesus just stepped out of the way. Why? Because there's this crowd now. We got this guy who's healed. He was on the floor. Now he's up. Now he's walking. He's picking up his mat. Can you imagine what it was like for that mass of people to surround him? And in that moment, because Jesus doesn't want to cause mass hysteria, he takes this moment to step away. And he's invisible. He's just gone. They don't know who did this. So the next time we see the paralytic, he's in the temple. Look with me. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing else happens to you. I would take my Bible, if you don't mind circling in your Bible, I did it in mine, and circle the word found and put above it twice. He found the man at the pool, and now he's found the man at the temple. He's concerned for his physical needs, and he's concerned for his heart, for his spiritual needs. So he comes to the temple and he finds him. The second time, Jesus hunts him out. Why is the guy at the temple? Probably went there to make sacrifices, I'm guessing. Probably following the law, telling him that for a healing, you've got to offer such and such. That's probably why he's there. We don't know that. But do you see the abrupt change in the middle of the conversation? Behold, you are well. Big smile. Don't sin anymore. There's an abrupt shift. Behold, you're well. Do not continue in sin. What's going on here? The stop sinning comment that Jesus makes to him presupposes that the lameness that he had may have been the result of sin in his life. And I want to be very clear on this because there's several forms of illness mentioned in Scripture. There's some illness unto death. There's some illness for the glory of God. There's some illness that we see as a result of people who are being disobedient. And this is a really important truth because Scripture is very clear. Some sickness is directly related to people who are being deliberately disobedient to God. Here's an example of it. I'll show you. When King David committed adultery, he was consumed. Look with me up on the screen. Psalm 20 or 32.3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I think that's somebody that's hurting. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? When we see Paul writing specifically the passage I just read to you about communion and the instructions to the church about how to participate in this, if I had read a couple more verses later, you would see that Paul said, some of you are actually dying because you're misusing the Lord's table. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this reason, meaning because of your sin, many among you are weak and sick, 
and a number sleep. So the most natural understanding of this passage here is that his illness that he had was the result of some sin in his life. And Jesus says, so that nothing worse happens to you. Nothing worse, you've been paralyzed for 38 years. What could be worse than that? How about eternity without God? Don't continue in your sin. Less something worse than 38 years of disease. Is that the reason that Jesus asked him, do you really want to be well? To cause him to think, it's not just your body. We're talking about your heart. We're talking about your relationship. Is that the reason? Well, we know this much. Some sin he has not yet given up, or Jesus would not have said that to him. But here's the remarkable thing, church. In spite of this, Jesus heals him anyway. He doesn't wait for the guy to repent. He doesn't wait for him to get his life right with God. He heals him and then confronts him on this situation. Now, was this so severe for him that he couldn't handle this confrontation? Because you never see a record of him praising Jesus. He never gives any worship to Jesus. What you see next is he turns tail and he runs right to the authorities. Go with me to verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So did he inform on Jesus for retaliation? Was that such a stern rebuke? You've got sin in your life. You've got to deal with it. Is that what caused him to go find them? I, we don't know, but it fuels their fire. And this is astonishing to me. Four decades of distress in his life, yet he's more loyal to those who want to kill Jesus than he is to the one who just healed him. And he's just dumping coals on their fire because I'm thinking at this point when he came to them and said, um, it was Jesus. I'm thinking the reaction was, I knew it. We knew it was Jesus because we know that they're already looking to kill Jesus at this point. So this may be seem like a really odd point for this question, but I'm gonna ask it anyways. Can God be surprised? Can God ever be surprised? No. So here's what's remarkable about this. The face of omniscience, God who knows everything, is looking in the eyes of his betrayer and says, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. This one who has been shown the grace of God is the one who's willing to betray. And Jesus knows it in advance, and yet he still heals this man, even though he's going to turn his back on him. Jesus knew this man would turn him in to those who wanted to kill him. How magnificent is the grace of your God, and how dark is the human heart who needs the relationship with God. You see the comparison there. So verse 16, this is where it begins to wrap up. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the Jews stop harassing the man and they begin to stalk Jesus. And the persecution of Jesus at this point really begins to ramp up as you're gonna see while we work through John. They turn from what is just challenging Jesus to the point where they want to destroy him. And this is the pivotal event in which it takes place. Why? What you're about to see next is Jesus' declaration and this is what really ticked them off. Look with me at verse 17. But he answered them, 
My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Brushstroke. There's a really big brushstroke. Jesus is clarifying. God has not suspended his creative activities. Yes, God stopped working at creation, but Jesus continues the creative work of God. We just saw it evidenced in this man's life. So he says, I'm simply doing what my father does. My father's at work, I'm at work. And they instantly understood what he's saying. They instantly associated that he's gone from Sabbath breaking to blasphemy, an executable crime. But Jesus wants us to understand, Sabbath restriction doesn't apply to God. God said, you need a day of rest. You need to recharge. I need to recharge. But God doesn't need to recharge. Isaiah wrote about this. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 40, 28. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. That's true. God rested on the seventh day. But if you look at the actual Hebrew words, what it says is God ceased from his creative activity, meaning his original creation. On the seventh day, God ceased the creation. But he doesn't need to rest. So Jesus is saying, I'm just like God. So there must be an indicator here of something much larger going on than Jesus just associating himself with God. What's really going on? He's gone from being accused as a Sabbath breaker to now a blasphemer. And this raises a much more serious concern for them because he's claiming to be equal with God. That's the step that's taken here. So they're not just struggling with his logic. It's the relationship that they're struggling with. Look at what Jesus says and how he says it. My Father is working, and I too am working. Jesus does not say, our Father is working which was the common expression among the Jewish people. Whenever they spoke of God, they would say, Our Father. Jesus says, My Daddy. My Father. And they understood the association. I'm not talking about something ethereal like you Jews talk about. I'm talking about my Father. And they get exactly what he's saying. They understand the implication of his words are unmistakable. So the question that's asked earlier of the man who's been healed, when they come to him and says, who is the man that healed you? Jesus is clarifying it for him. He's making it really clear. I'll tell you who the man is. Jesus tells him, it's me. I'm God. I'm clarifying for you. I can heal people on the Sabbath because my Father's always at work and I can be at work. So I'm thinking at this point, the ink on the wanted posters is not yet dry and they're already hanging him in the post office window because they're going after him relentlessly, looking for every opportunity. And it's right at this point that you're reading this morning, the official persecution of Jesus begins. They're launching after him. The true enemies of Jesus can always be identified because they deny that he is the Son of God. They deny his rightful place of authority. So look with me at verse 18. This is how it ends. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not, not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they ignore the miracle. The die has been cast. Jesus has just begun to confront them at their very core 
saying, you think you have a spiritual life? I'm about to show you. It doesn't exist. And he's challenged them on their own playing field. The most important question you're ever going to hear asked is the question that you saw in the text this morning. When the individuals came to the man and said, who is the man? If you can answer that question, who is Jesus? It will be the most important question you ever answer, the most important question you ever hear. And how you answer it will determine your eternal destiny. I'm going to ask you that you would pray with me at this moment and that God would really seal these truths in our heart. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, for a great majority in this room, we can confidently claim we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He was risen from the dead and we believe on His name. But Father, I recognize there's others who struggle with this yet and are continuing to work on it, so I ask that You would be at work in their heart. Help them to take these truths and work through them in such a way that you bring conviction through the work of your Holy Spirit. Opportunities like this don't come along very often, Father. So I ask that you would be at work in this room right now, that your Spirit would be present and bring knowledge of truth to every individual, that Jesus is who he said he is. Father, for those of us who name the name of Christ as we take on this week, help us to take it on boldly and confidently to confront legalism when we see it, to make sure that we discern what is the difference between what you said and what man says. Father, seal these truths in our hearts that our life with you might be abundant and full, that we really might understand what it means to have a real life with you. God, we look to you because you are amazing, you are powerful, there is none like you. We declare it in truth, we declare it in song, we declare it in word. We praise you and thank you because you are mighty. God, we ask you would take these truths, seal them deeply in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.